0: My heart's in the highlands, my heart is not here. My heart's in the highlands, a-chasing the deer. Chasing the wild deer, and following the roe. My heart's in the highlands, wherever I go. Farewell to the highlands, farewell to the north. The birthplace of valor, the country of worth. Wherever I wander, wherever I rove. The hills of the highlands, forever I love farewell to the mountains high covered with snow farewell to the straths and green valleys below farewell to the forests and wild hanging woods farewell to the torrents and loud pouring floods my heart's in the highlands my heart is not here my heart's in the highlands a chasing the deer chasing the wild deer and following the roe. my heart's in the highlands wherever I go 1789. Robert Burns, My Heart's in the Highlands. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same or maybe you long to. If that piece of music doesn't make your hair stand on end, I don't know what will. I mean, truly an angelic song. That is uh, written by Arvo Part, the great Estonian composer, and that is My Hearts in the Highlands, the lyrics of which are from a famous poem. I want to say thank you to Malgorzata Praebi. Positive that I'm mispronouncing your name, but she that is her rendition of it. And uh she is letting us put that on the podcast. So major thanks to her. Um a little so that piece of music right there, the lyrics are from this old poem. And let me read this. This is from the BBC, and this adds a little context, which is gonna come in handy with our um conversation today the crofters were given half an hour to remove their belongings before their houses were burned to the ground you'll hear in this podcast the crofters is a type of farmer in the scottish highlands thus on a very unlucky 13th of june 1814 commenced the infamous strathnaver clearances in sutherland more money could be got from the raising of sheep than the raising of families and crops, so the people went and were sent to Canada and other places in the New World. Many's a heart remained in the Highlands, however, and although Burns wrote this song before the clearances began in earnest, its air of nostalgic yearning will have been familiar to all those harried out of their Highland homes. So you're going to hear a little bit more about those clearances from today's guest. Today's podcast guest is Megan Rowland. Her business is The Wayfaring Hind Deer and Land Management. She is in Sutherland in the Scottish Highlands, and she is a deer stalker, a crofter, and a land manager. She reached out to me about doing a logo for her business, The Wayfaring Hind, and I thought, how neat of an opportunity would this be to hear a little bit about a different part of the world? So, this one is a bit of an experiment. You know, um, if you've been listening to this podcast, I try to do them, I do them all in person and I drive to people. And I was trying to see if uh, I would still be happy with a podcast that I did over the internet. And I'm doing them over the internet. There's so many challenges with just uh, the audio quality and like delays in the internet reception. And so it makes communication really difficult and it feels, it's really hard to feel really connected to the other person. Um that said, uh I absolutely loved talking to Megan. I wish it was in person. Um and yet uh we still got to hear about so much really really neat uh folkways, cultural culture culture of the highlands, tradition of the highlands, um what hunting is like there, it's very different than here in America and uh, little tidbits about history and archaeology. So I really enjoyed this one. And uh, if you want to know more about Megan, uh, check her out at Wayfaring Hind. And uh, I think that's her Instagram handle and her website. I would like to say a big thank you to everyone who's been helping out on Patreon last year and into this new year. Um, We have two new folks, Kenneth Giles and Trex with a shotgun. Thank you both. And uh, everyone at the highest tier, um, a big thank you, Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw, On Stanley, Bailey Grenert, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff, uh, Leslie Peterson Cohen, uh, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, the working class woodsman, and, uh, everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you all so much, um. The Patreon account is patreon.com forward slash nature, and your all help is really helping because uh, I always end up putting a lot of effort into these episodes, and they uh, take time away from my other work. So it's really helpful and meaningful that uh, you guys are appreciating it and keeping this thing going. Um, uh, also, I thought some things to mention before um, starting the episode maybe things to check out on Google. Um, One is Megan mentions this thing called the blackthorn salt. She said that this is where they make salt today. And uh, it's this strange tower made of blackthorns. And it is absolutely strange looking. It's, I would definitely Google the blackthorn salt. Um, Also, uh, we talk about the European wildcat Um, If you're familiar with bobcats and lynxes, then it's kind of interesting to see what the European uh, wildcat looks like because it looks so different. It looks totally like a normal cat. And um, then we also talk about the Pict people. And uh, if you've never seen depictions of the Picts, there are these awesome old paintings of these people who are incredibly decorated. So maybe those are some things to check out briefly before we get into this episode. For today's podcast reading, I wanted to try to find some deer folklore from the highlands. And there's quite a lot of it, a lot about uh, the old pagan deer goddesses, um, deer hags um, in the form of the Kaliak. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. These names are so difficult to pronounce. Um, One thing I found really fascinating was some folklore about um, that the Kaliak would um, milk the hinds, she would milk deer instead of, and the fairies would have, um, instead of cattle, they would have deer as their cattle and milk them. And and the Kaliak would make cheese and whatnot from the milk. There's also some lore that the fairies in the form of deer uh, do not like hunters and will try to fumble the hunters up. And there's one story that I came across where, um, a hunter killed a deer at night and is carrying it upon his back. And it is so incredibly heavy. He can barely, barely walk with the burden of it on his shoulders. And another man comes over and uh, pinpricks it with a knife. And all of a sudden, all the weight disappears. And um, the man says, ah, the uh, fairies were weighing me down. Now, the one I'm going to read is by John MacDonald, and it's from 1952. Um, The name of the book, I cannot pronounce at all. I believe it's probably in in Scottish Gaelic. It's, uh, I wouldn't even know how to start to pronounce a lot of this stuff. A man went out to the moor with a gun and his dogs, and he was going to get a deer. His step was cheerful and joyful, as he was feeling in a good mood. He had not gone far forward to the heights of the moor when he saw a few people cutting peat. Come over here, young fellow, they said to him. We are going to take our food, and you can have a share. Oh, he said, thank you, but I don't need any food. Oh, you may be needy enough for it before you return. You may have a long stock before you get a deer. He agreed to this and went over their implements were put to one side and they all sat around the table they had and there was plenty butter cheese oat cakes and milk and he had his share now i will be off he said and many thanks to you for your food and he went off he had not gone far on the heights of the moor when he saw a stag as beautiful as he had ever seen before well well he said i haven't gone far to hunt and he went to take aim with his gun to shoot, and what did he see but a woman in his sight? "'Oh, God, what's this?' he said. He lowered the gun and lifted it again, and when he aimed the gun again, there was a beautiful woman with the red hair, and she was combing her hair, and whatever was falling from her head but lice, and she was striking them. "'Oh, what business this is,' he said. "'But I've heard that by putting a sixpence in the gun it might well be useful.' He put a sixpence in the gun, and then took aim. And there appeared a deer, and when he fired, the deer fell dead. He went up to where the deer was, and he was going to growlick it, going to take its guts out. And as he turned towards the deer, he grew very weak. He said to himself, It's just as well I had some food, or I would be faint. And when he opened the deer and looked inside, he saw the bread and cheese that he had eaten at the peat bank, and this dumbfounded him greatly. He folded his gun under his armpit and went home, but he did not get a deer that day.
1: So right now, um, I am in the North Highlands of Scotland, um, over on the East Coast. Um, my partner and I have a, a small, uh, it's a croft, which is kind of a small farm, um, About 20 acres in in the east coast, so that's kind of where I'm based at the moment. Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit further away than you're used to to traveling. (laughs) That
0: is definitely true. Now, uh, so there's already a million things that I want to talk about with you today. One of which (laughs) is this word crofting. Do you think that that is like how in the states we say like homesteading? Is it basically the same thing?
1: Similar idea slightly different history, but a similar idea. Um, so a croft is kind of like a, originally was like a small tenanted farm. Um, Mm. people, there's a sort of saying that a croft is a small parcel of land surrounded by red tape. It's, it's kind of one of these areas of like the legislation around it is just a complete, um, can of worms. (laughs) It's, it's quite something. Um, I think because of the, partly because the history of it, um, Partly the way that the legislation has changed over time, because you now have, you know, owner-occupied crofts as well, where people can buy them, and then because of the way land prices have changed, suddenly you've got a croft that was worth, you know, a very minimal peppercorn rent is now worth, you know, like hundreds of thousands of pounds. So it's it's a really weird area of, of sort of land law um, in in Scotland, and it, it is very much re- restricted to a, a few counties. So the one where we are. Um, the one north of us and a couple south of us, um, so yeah. <laughs> do you
0: own the so do you own that chunk or is it still like the is the tenant system was back in the day? Yeah. there would be yeah. like lords who would own a huge swath of land, and then the yeah. farmers would run their little chunk right
1: that kind of thing I mean what we had was i mean in in the highlands, you might have heard about the, the clearances, which sort of starts to take place over the seventeen eighteen hundreds. Um, when mm. land use changed quite remarkably with the sort of demand for, um, with the demand for wool as, you know, main mm. sort of fiber, um, sheep farming became like the big thing. Um, and the, up until that point there were, you know, settlements all across all sort of little, um, sort of, we'd, we'd call it a strath, but you're know, like a little valley. Um, all, all these areas would have settlements. I mean, the one where, um. We're sort of stay there used to be about 600 people lived up there you know it's quite a lot of people <laughs> I mean they're quite you know quite a remote what is now a remote area um so during this sort of clearance period um the land which was as good as it was because it had people farming it was seen to be really good for you know sheep farming and agriculture and uh, there was a kind of push from the landowners and then carried out by their kind of employees and their sort of factoring um, factoring employees, the people who ran their estates, um, to drive people off the land. And, and a lot of people either went down to the coast and started working and you know, there, was a salt, there was a salt panning kind of operation mm. and coal mining or um, whatever. And uh, a lot of them ended up immigrating and, you know, heading to the States, to Canada, you know, and, and just leaving all together. So there's, um, it's, this, yeah, it's, it's kind of a crafting's one of these things. It's quite, there's a sort of bittersweet, <laughs> um, kind of history to it. Um, that
0: is very so, fascinating. I just yeah. watched, so we've found this YouTube channel. That's an English channel. I think it's called, mm-hmm. um, Chronicles or something like that. It's, mm-hmm. uh, and they put out documentaries on YouTube and some of them are, um, they're really well-made, but some of them are like yeah. living history where yeah. everyone's in in period clothing and it's like one yeah. hour of showing people how to do stuff. And yeah. the period we just watched was Tudor, so it's 1500s, yeah. and yeah. there's a wonderful woman in it. And she was showing how, well, how incredibly important salt was to mm-hmm. – medieval. I guess that was late medieval, end of medieval times, um, yeah. how important salt was, obviously, for preserving food – Um, and they show you how to cook it. So just Mm -hmm. like you said, panning for salt here where, where we are in in the States, in the region that I'm in, we have a lot of uh, maple syrup producers and it it looks like it's an extremely similar, similar process with a Mm -hmm. large pan that they would fill with, um, salt water, I guess, from the coast or from like brackish, not brackish, but they would have like a salt spring or something. Mm -hmm. And, and then, uh, and then you cook it. For yeah. hours and hours, extraordinary.
1: There's uh, there's quite a cool place down south, and that's probably the method they used here. But they've they've got a place down south um, where they've got like a big, it's like a big tower made out of uh, blackthorn. Um, it's it's worth looking. I, can, I think it's called blackthorn salt, actually, being <laughs> quite original with the name. Um, and uh, and theirs is like a, almost like a, a dehydration process. And there's something about the black. I haven't, I haven't read enough about it, but it's it's this really cool massive tower it looks like something out of Game of Thrones kind of thing it's Mm. um with this yeah sort of just this massive amount of like black wood and twigs and all Mm. the sort of salt air um I'm assuming Mm. sort of gathers on this this, these twigs and and goes into this big tower and and the salt is kind of then dehydrated off the you know from from the from the sea air sorry this is mum brain kicking in (laughs) I'm forgetting my words it's not good um yeah so that's huh. that's quite cool too but the way yeah the way you described it is what we used to do here i think it's
0: sort of, it's fascinating uh, so it so you are are you like are where does the highlands start are you at the very top or when people think of the highlands is that like exactly where you are is it that county and that it looks like you guys are all the way north
1: yeah so, um, okay. when, when people think of the highlands, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like they, they get the image of like, say the Cairngorms National Park, which is kind of like snow and mountains or the kind of West coast kind of, you know, um, Norwegian kind of style coastline. Um, hmm. we're kind of on the, we're on the more gentle side of the country. <laughs> um, like the, the West coast tends to get our, our, prevailing weather, um, off the Atlantic. So if you guys are getting sort of storms in the States, then we get the sort of, very often the tail end of a, a so sort of hurricanes and things like that as it swirls back around um so the west coast gets i mean i'm trying to think they probably get about three times the rain we do here it's quite a phenomenal amount of, of uh, precipitation over there um mm. so i mean the highlands as it is it kind of gets lumped into one thing but within that you've got a range of different counties there, which are all quite different to one another um mm. So and and just in terms of like sort of social history as much as anything as as to do, with, you know the geography as as well. So, I mean up in the north where we are is where a lot of the original sort of Viking um, settlers kind of came
2: across.
1: Hmm. So you know came across from the fjords of Norway, saw the flatland in Caithness and Sutherland, and went well this looks good. <laughs> I think well I think we'll stay. Um, so it's it's quite yeah like up in Caithness up in the north you've got all around the sort of coastal flatlands. There's actually quite a lot of like Norse-sounding names, um, mm. whereas like the locals obviously got pushed further inland, and they still have a lot of uh, Scots-Gaelic names. So it's quite interesting. The kind of if you're looking at maps of the area, um, you can start to pick up who settled where, when, and and uh, and how. It's quite cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of European history gets pre- it gets pretty complex pretty fast with all the thousands of years of people taking over each other
1: <laughs> definitely definitely I think mm. I think it's that thing where like I mean I've been to um to Africa and and uh, to Uganda and they've got like two growing seasons a year and for us that was like seeing that was just like wow this is amazing <laughs> you know I think mm. we're, we're struggling with one growing season you know mm, and then they're sure. there with two but I think I was chatting to my partner about it and we were saying it's it's possibly that um that fact that our seasons are so short. You really have to like, you really have to like plan what you're doing and how you're going to store stuff. You can't rely on like a second growing season to like make up the gap. And it also is probably one of those things that because resources were so short, people just had to go and had to go and sort of pillage and settle elsewhere. (laughs) You know, Mm. um, it's probably, probably why the sort of Northern Europeans have been quite good at stravaging the, the, the globe and sort of kicking other people out of this. <laughs> yeah. I can now, sort of see this... it in a common sense kind of way, but.
0: <laughs> now, would your area have been the the ancient haunt of the, the Pict people?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think wow. this is Pictish stones. Whatever, you know,
0: whatever <laughs> you know about them, can you say a little? Because I only know the, the vaguest amount, but they seem like a really fascinating, I guess they, would, they would, were an, the indigenous people of that area. Can you describe them or yeah, whatever I mean,
1: you know? The, the Picts, the, they had a name from the uh, sort of fearsome reputation from the, they used to apparently dye their skin or, or tattoo. I mean, it's not very, we'll never know. Um, but I think they were perceived by the sort of Romans as being quite fearsome because they were basically Pictish people because of the images on their skin. So they either painted or, or tattooed themselves with it. I think it's woad that they used it for that kind of bluey ink that they get. Um, so yeah, they were kind of a pretty fierce and robust group of people. Um to, to survive this far north you'd have to be pretty hardy, you know. I mean it's it could be tough enough when you've got <laughs> all the sort of mod cons, but um to think that they were doing that in the sort of, you know, Middle Ages is pretty pretty amazing or earlier.
0: Oh um, yeah. So what did you say there? You said woad, and that's blue ink. What is that? Yeah.
1: So woad is like um, it's like a, a a natural blue dye from from a uh, plant. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it's a brassica, um,
2: mm. but,
1: that that uh, sort of sort of relate to like cabbages and stuff. That it's one of the families. I, I'm not an expert by any means, but I think it's it's one of these sort of natural blue dyes, and apparently they use oh. it for tattooing
0: quite cool so cool <laughs> i mean um, uh, when I, I interviewed a um a cherokee man down in north carolina which yeah. is the uh, the ancestral lands of the of the cherokee and yeah. uh, i asked him some questions about how the there's kind of like these archetypal images of how they would paint their bodies totally red yeah. and i was like how what is that red and he said it was uh, bear fat yeah. mixed with um with ochre red ochre oh very cool so cool i just love stuff like that
1: Oh, no. No, it's definitely.
0: (laughs) Now, um, you said, so something that came to mind, we were talking about the crofting and you started talking a bit about the hard um, farming seasons. I don't know too much about farming. I'm more on the hunting side, Mm. which we're going to get into a lot. But um, so is there because you said the the growing season is so short, is there a very rich history of like preserving food? And is there any examples you could tell us?
1: I think in this area, it, a lot of, a lot of salting. Um, that was mm. kind of the big thing. I mean, up in the, up in the North coast, the, let me have a think now this, there's a sort of talk of the silver darlings. It was herrings were the big thing in the, this area. Um, so be it, fish. It, hairy, yes, type of fish. Um, but, um, and quite, quite weak, quite, but quite easily and readily preserved and, uh, and, they have like uh, in in Norway and the sort of Scandinavian countries, um, they have what they call raw mop herring, which is again a kind of like way they're pickling it. Um, it's really it sounds it sounds pretty, it sounds quite unappealing, but it's actually really nice. It's sort of pickled herring, um, mm. and um, yeah. So yeah, but salting would have been the probably the big thing actually for preserving food and just even like drying stuff is is really difficult up here. It's quite a damp climate um because mm. i mean you speak to anybody who sort of tries charcuterie and it, it, sometimes you, or, you know you could be quite lucky and you get a dry spell and you can get your sort of meat dried really well and other times it's just complete non-starter and you can end up spoiling stuff so it's um yeah salting would have been the way to do it or or pre- sort of brining that probably would have been another one
0: would um, there were there uh a- Are there certain vegetables that would have been like a staple that's been a one of tradition for a long time
1: so up here um i mean the the humble potato has been a big Mm -hmm. big thing for a long time um as as long as we've had access to potatoes we really like potatoes Mm -hmm. um they're yeah they're definitely kind of a mainstay neeps as well um which is a a, a kind of turnip kind of thing Um, okay okay
0: interesting interesting
1: so yeah um, what else neeps and tatties it's kind of like the like when you know the whole Robert Burns supper um, the sort of haggis neeps and tatties that's that's the kind of it's quite a famous kind of combination um, for, for good reason <laughs> um, well I
0: think I always sort
1: of I, available
0: I think I told you um, one. well one of the highlights in my life was I did so I've got a lot of family in Europe in England and in Belgium um, so I've my, the majority of my traveling has been to see my family throughout my life. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been a lot in Europe, but, uh, I got hired at one point, like nine years ago to film a little documentary on the Isle of Isla in the Hebrides, which is uh, quite South from you. But, um, but, uh, yeah, some of the food we had was amazing. We had like the blood pudding, which I Mm -hmm. guess is just like meat mixed with blood.
1: Um so black pudding's like uh yeah black it's, it's blood mixed with um like uh oatmeal. Um mm. and it's one of these things that sounds it sounds desperately terrible when you say, you need to describe it but it's it's really delicious.
0: It's um, incredible. So there so there's no meat it's just it's the meal and Yeah it's the, the meal
1: meal and blood and seasonings basically. Wow. Um, that's cool.
0: I might try that. I mean have you ever tried that with a deer
1: I haven't no um I, i've i know people who've tried to make haggis from the from the deer and um so like you know for anybody who doesn't know again haggis is one of those sort of great sounding delicacies it's become kind of a sort of scottish staple dish it's like the the what is it now the lungs um and let me just i'm gonna have to double check
2: yeah i don't it, know it's I've like all the sort of
1: awfully bits of a sheep <laughs> mm. um cooked in the stomach of the sheep again mixed with like uh Mixed with the oatmeal and seasoning, and I guess, let me see what the recipe is. I don't think uh, I've ever had that. And boiled, that sounds, that sounds and it sounds like it sounds, it sounds rank, and it tastes really good. <laughs> 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 like a lot of these things, like a lot of these traditional kind of dishes, and it's at the end. There you go. Haggis uh, is a traditional Scottish sausage made from sheep's stomach, stuffed with nice sheep's liver, lungs, and heart, oatmeal, onions, suet, mm. and seasoning. Uh, it sounds like I said, it sounds horrible, but it's it's really good.
0: <laughs> I wanna I wanna know if some deer hunters will try that.
1: Well I said I know people who tried it and they, they used um venison fats, which was obviously the mistake in because venison fat's like hard setting. And it said it was mm-hmm. like tasted good but left that kind of like residue on the back of your teeth, which sort of took the enjoyment out of it. Um mm. but yeah, haggis is well worth a if you're ever back in Scotland it's worth a a go because it's oh, I'm actually coming. Yeah, I'm coming it is actually At some point. <laughs> it's actually su- sort of surprisingly good. Um, yeah. So
0: let's so let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about like the landscape, and then let's mm-hmm. get into like flora and fauna, and mm-hmm. and your deer management and all yeah. that. Um, firstly, here's my first question. You know, I feel like I could have looked it up. I feel like I could have <laughs> looked up a lot of these things, but why do that <laughs> when I can wait and talk to you? Absolutely. So one thing I wonder is. You know, when I was in um, Isla or mm-hmm. when you see images of, um, you know, the highlands or, or any of those Hebrides islands, you see these yeah. amazing, vast landscapes that mm-hmm. um, are void of trees yeah. and they, they're covered in like scrub and grasses. Mm-hmm. Is that what the land looked like like a thousand years ago or has it been like timbered by people for eons? Like, is that what it's supposed to look like?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the current debate, actually, in Scotland land, Scottish land management at the moment, um, mm. is, is what should Scotland look like, you know, mm. um, I mean, what you're seeing there is basically what it would look like post-glaciation, you know, I mean, the thing is, like, with Scotland, it's, it's a really, it's still quite a new landscape, um, and it's, you know, it's not that long since we've had glaciers here, really, and it's only, like, what 10 11,000 years which in ge- geographical terms is like an eye blink um and what you've had with a, like here is as the and they know from like sort of looking at various lichens and sort of being able to carbon date um or what is it this it's a yeah it's something something in the lichen it's a beryllium in the lichen they can basically carbon date the sort of ice um expansion and withdrawal. And uh, you know so they know that the like the, the the ice has sort of come down i pushed everybody down south your know, animals and people and then as it's with, withdrawn again and melted as the climate warmed you know people have basically followed the ice back up north um, mm. so i mean yeah you know, at the end of the day it's it's gone down as far as the original sort of ice sheet went down as far as the sort of south of france cuz they've got reindeer bones and some of the cave systems down there so oh
0: um, that's so cool
1: you know it <laughs> But we've also got sort of, you know, sort of caves up here where we've got, you know, polar bear bones and things like that. So it's,
2: mm.
1: yeah, it's it's quite a, it's quite an interesting one at the moment. There's sort of discussion about whether we should be reforesting Scotland. Should we let it naturally do it, or do we need to give it a helping hand? Um, are there too many deer, and are they part of the problem in stopping it regenerating? Um, it's it's a really tricky one, and I'm not sure that there'll ever be an answer that kind of pleases every, anybody and everybody. I mean, what mm. we've got, like in the area that I stay in, in the sort of Sutherland, uh, county of Sutherland, is is one of the biggest areas of intact, what they call blanket bog in the world. Um, so it's like a, do you know, peat, you know, the peat soil.
0: So it's one the th- of the, so one of the coolest things I got to do mm. when I was in Isla working with that, with yeah. Procladi, is yeah. I got to dig peat. Yeah. So tell, <laughs> Tell so you, me a little bit about, like, what is it, and then yeah. why is that? Up? You said it was a peat. What was the term? Peat? A peat bog. A peat bog. Um,
1: so a peat bog is basically a, an area of land made up of this soil called peat, which here, uh, not every occasion, but, like, predominantly, and especially here, is made up of a, a moss called sphagnum. It's, like, a heap of different species. But sphagnum is, it's, like, a, you know, super... Um, ability to absorb carbon firstly which is why it's the big sexy thing at the moment um and what it does is basically creates an environment for itself so what happened and this is part of the sort of change in landscape of Scotland is that there was a you know after the glaciers had melted we ended up with you know the landscape changing you know succession trees coming in doing their thing and then we ended up with a big volcanic um event up in Iceland which caused a sort of Bit of a nuclear winter, quite dark, quite wet, quite cold, which was terrible for trees, but really suited the mosses. Um, so what you've got is basically a lot of trees dying off, and a Mine lot of the mosses. This. this was oh, thousands of years ago, um, okay. and uh, a lot of the mosses um, basically colonising and doing really well for themselves. So like in this area that I'm in here, the, the sort of Caithness and Southern peatlands. Um, you know, you're finding, you can find trees that have just fallen over in, in you know, because the habitats just cease to be good for them. But what the sphagnum's done is, is it creates a really wet, acidic environment. Um, so when it dies or any other plant matter dies, it doesn't rot. It just gets sort of sucked down into the this, mm. this and, and builds upon itself. It's a really slow growing soil. I mean, every, what is it now? I think it's a millimetre every like hundred years or something. It's really slow growing, wow. Um, or a centimetre wow. every centimetre every hundred years. I think it's some ridiculously slow growing soil. So when you see p- peat that's sort of like four metres deep, you know it's like f- <laughs> you know it's like you know four thousand years of soil build up there. It's it's quite cool stuff. Um, like I said it's one of these sort of like um, it's brilliant absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, which is why we sort of looking at managing and preserving, and protecting peatlands at the moment in Scotland. Because um, like I said, caithness, southern peatlands have apparently got more carbon, more CO2 trapped there underground than there is in all vegetation in Britain and Ireland combined. You know, it's like really good at doing its job.
0: Incredible. Um, I mean, amazing. The, the, two, yeah. the two things that come to mind when we start talking about peat, because don't, we don't really have that. We do have some spots here where I am in West Virginia. I'm in the highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, within like an hour and a half, two hours, we can get on this elevated plateau, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, which is like an Arctic tundra. It's a super micro region and it's completely filled with that, uh, sphagnum moss or however you say it. So it might be somewhat similar up there. It's, it's very much like, um, Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, just on this tiny little tract of land. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I think about Pete, the two, my two major questions are, or things that come to mind is one, they're always finding like, you know, ancient bodies Mm -hmm. and, like, archaeological um, relics in in peat bogs, yeah?
1: Yeah. It's really good at, like I said, it's really good at preserving stuff because it's quite a... Oh, what's the word? An anaerobic environment. There is no oxygen gets in there. What You can really Mm. find bog bodies. They are, like, really well preserved. I mean, hair, um, skin, tattoos, you know, everything is basically as was. Um, it's like, yeah, and and actually what, like like I was saying about the crofting earlier, what they would have is what they would call sheelings up here, which are like small um, sort of summer settlements. So people would have their main settlement down in the valley bottom or the Strathbit bottom and then they would head up or part of the community would head up into the hill for the, for the summer months, perhaps with the animals and graze them up on the hill while they grew crops mm. down in the low ground. Don't have fences at the end of the day, so they'd have to find ways to manage it. And uh, they'd make the you know, take the cows up onto the hill and stay up there for the summer. And they would have, um, you know, they'd be milk, making milk and m- milking the cows and making cheese and butter. So, was, you know, they'd, they'd actually keep the butter and the cheese in the peat, wrap it and keep it in the peat, keep it cool and keep it, you know, fresh, basically. So no occasionally people have actually found these little packs of like cheese. You wouldn't want to eat it, but, <laughs> you know, cheese and butter and things in, in the peat. Um,
0: no way. Yeah. From like yeah. hundreds of years ago?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, my so God. Very, so very, cool. very
1: rare. But it's it's kind of one of these things that's, um, yeah, quite cool. Really.
0: That is so cool.
1: <laughs> so um, you're asking about preserving. That was another one.
0: <laughs> Do they have you like the bog bodies? Have, mm. have any of those been exhumed from like the general you Know within like an hour from where you live. I mean, is that like a major thing?
1: No, not anywhere local that I'm aware okay. of. Um, but um, okay. I mean, they, they had quite a few in Ireland. That was, there's quite oh, a okay. Few okay. famous ones in Ireland for whatever reason. Maybe they'd just been better at finding them. <laughs> um, no, yeah.
0: Now, why is peat so extraordinary for whiskey? I mean, I guess it imparts that smoky, that wonderful smoky flavor. Yeah. Is that just, it's just the best thing? To burn to create flavor,
1: uh, pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a, a whiskey producing aficionado <laughs> you know, by any means, but it's mm-hmm. that um, that process of I think it's when they're it's when they're malting the barley and they get the part of the flavor at that point. Mm. Um, and Pete's got a really distinct taste. I mean, yeah, whiskey is one of these things that you know it can be quite sort of. I think people try it. They might try a blend and go, oh, "I don't like whiskey." But actually, if you sort of have a chance to travel around the Highlands, particularly and, and try a few different distilleries, like East and West Coast, the difference is remarkable. Like you, oh yeah, having been on the West oh, Coast, yeah. you'll have tried really quite strong peaty whiskies, and they're really grab you by the tonsils kind of <laughs> no ones. Um, and some people really like that. And other ones on the East Coast, this side. there's one or two known as like maritime malts because they're right on the sea. Um, Mm. So like Old Pulteney, for example. And it's just a different taste. So the Speyside whiskey's, you know, it's just a a more mellow experience. Um,
0: Yes, I know what you mean.
1: Yeah, so yeah, it's quite a... a Whiskey's a whole other other topic. One that I enjoy, but I'm not an expert in.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, um, so you started talking about... um, the deer, maybe having too much deer browse, like start mm. you. So you tell us a little bit about what your occupation is, your role as this deer yeah. stalker. Yeah. Cause that is absolutely fascinating. And then we'll get into kind of like hunting style and mm-hmm. maybe, um, tradition and anything like that a little later, but yeah. first tell us, yeah. What do you do and, um, what is your importance for maintaining these landscapes, et cetera?
1: Mm-hmm. So, My kind of role for the last few years has been as a as a deer manager or deer stalker on a Highland estate. Um, So that role is kind of you. You mean most deer stalkers are tied to a a property and will manage deer within that area, but like work with the neighbours to do that. Um, You know, to to have a sort of deer management group area, and uh, you kind of will go out and count our deer. Um, get an idea of recruitment and, and then everyone can sort of work with one another in an ideal world. It doesn't always work because everyone's got different objectives, <laughs> but um, to decide how many males, females they're going to cull each year. Um, so that was kind of my role for five, nearly six years. Um, I now work with mm. um, our sort of like natural resources department um, with Scottish Government at the moment, but um, yeah, the civil service life is a slightly different. <laughs> Slightly different thing so again, it, working within the deer management side of things, but far less exciting, I'm afraid.
0: I feel like this is very foreign to um, maybe <laughs> the American listener. Yeah. Um, so is it would it kind of be like you're like a private? It's like you're a professional hunter on a private piece of property.
1: Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I suppose that's the thing, and the contrast with like you guys is we don't have any kind of like public land. There's no public land hunting in Scotland. Right. Um, which is like a bit of a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. It's just different histories and, and ways of, of managing land. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, the area that I was on was about 15,000 acres. Um, wow. It's,
0: and that's owned by one person? It's owned or by one family, like one, one family.
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 15,000 yeah. acres, you said?
1: Yeah. Um, wow. And that's classed as a sort of medium-sized sporting estate. So there's there's quite wow. a lot of discrepancy, like discrepancy and unhappiness with the way that land is... Owned and managed in Scotland um, because you've is got quite like large old, areas. Is this got, like
0: old money families, or is it like new?
1: A mix, billionaires, a mix. like okay. a mix. To be honest, I mean, we've got um, we've got sort of like older families who've you know the family might have had the estate for hundreds of years. Um, the like the estate I worked on, the family had the estate for you know it's like their hundredth year this year, I think. Um, whereas other people, like there's a sort of what are dubbed green lairds. So people who are like buying land and estates in Scotland for the sake of like carbon offsetting. So they might own hmm. big enterprises and factories in like Indonesia, but we'll buy land here <laughs> and then sort of say, hey, we're protecting a peat bog. So it's capturing carbon so we can carry on doing what we're doing. That sort of thing. Oh, my God. Wow. A, so there's a lot of a lot of discussion in Scotland at the moment about the whole sort of like carbon carbon hmm. use carbon credits carbon offsetting whether protecting peat bogs is the way to go or should we be planting trees on it we still need timber so you know what should we yeah this it's a really kind of messy picture of the one in hmm. um yeah. so yeah like i said we don't have any kind of we've got public land but there's no public like people can't hunt on it but well, it's, it's kind f- of
0: it's for recreation.
1: It's for recreation. I mean, they still there's still deer need to be shot on it, um, mm. and in that instance, there'll be um, like guys taken on as contractors um, by you know the government basically to to carry out that job. But um, it's been one of my kind of personal bugbears that there's no actual access because it's so hard to mm. like. I never came from a hunting family at all, so for me to actually sort of break into the sector or get any experience mm. at all was a bit of a slog. <laughs> um, and because we don't have, it, and I said don't have any kind of easy access to it. You either have to be lucky or persistent or spend a lot of money or sometimes all three.
2: <laughs>
0: wow. Yeah, so, it is fascinating. Now, um, can you, um, describe? So obviously the American listener is going to be very familiar with a white-tailed deer, whether they mm-hmm. hunt them or if you lo- live in the suburbs in yeah. America, you probably see white-tailed deer walk around in your backyard. Like yeah. whitetail deer is an extremely familiar animal here. Mm-hmm. So are, have you, do the, are there white tails there? Like have any been imported by accident or anything like that? Like, can you, really why I'm asking that is could you describe what deer you guys have Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with whitetails, can you describe how yours are a little different?
1: Yeah. Um, so as, as far as it goes in importing any, um, there is a population of whitetail deer in Finland, um, mm. but none in the UK, at least like running wild. I mean, I can't vouch for every private collection, but I, I think I'm pretty certain there aren't any whitetail in the UK. Um, what we do have is sort of six species of, of wild mm. living deer um so we have our red deer which are like your elk your wapiti um mm. the same family the same sort of service family and in fact they can actually interbreed because there was a mm. i think we discussed in that email there was actually a few taken over um for the original sort of deer parks down in england and crossed out to try and get bigger stags um mm. and those deer were then taken out to other states who wanted big deer and you do sometimes see these sort of like quite elk-like heads with that drop tine at the back Um, like even up here in the North Island so yeah we do we do have um, we do have uh, the red deer who are like I said like your elk we've got roe deer who are other native species Um, they're kind of what are they like their Latin name is Capriolus Capriolus which means like goat-like they're a lot more kind Hmm. of like uh, I'm trying to describe them a lot smaller than reds. I mean I couldn't sort of pick a red deer up but I could pick a roe deer up. If that's the sort of
0: Is it like a goat or a sheep size? They're
1: kind of goaty. Yeah. Okay. Um they've got like their their antlers are kind of like can be quite wee and instead of I mean like a red deer can have multiple points um whereas the the roe will typically have like three points three times on their mm. antlers. Mm. Um yeah they're quite they're quite smart wee, wee fellas. I mean the reds will live you know, up up right at top of the mountains, um mm. all the way down to the woodlands, even like round towns now, people have got red deer turning up in towns and villages. Um whereas mm. the road deer tend to they're just that bit softer. At least in the UK, although I think in like Norway they can go right up to the Arctic Circle, which is quite cool. Um but here they're definitely more of sort of like agricultural um city town edges, that kind of thing, like woodland. Um then we've got um Fallow deer, which are the like quite spotty ones, you'll see in spotty coats on them. Um, and they're originally from like Mesopotamia, so brought over, Mm -hmm. I think, with the Romans. uh, That you know, they're they're kind of they've been here a long time and are pretty naturalized, but um, uh, we don't have them in this area.
0: It broke up when you said it. Was that the fallow deer?
1: Yeah, the fallow deer. Yeah, they're the ones with sort of like quite big, um, flat antlers. When you mm-hmm. see them, they sort of come up into like a hand shape.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what else we've got? We've got Sika deer, which are a Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, my, most of ours are sort of our uh, Japanese Sika that were brought over for the deer parks. And then as people sort of interested in the deer park faded and the upkeep um, <laughs> stopped, so sort of all the fences, the Sika just burst away and have done really well. They also hybridize um, with the red deer. So they're quite an interesting whoop. challenge.
0: We have a wild population of those pretty close mm. to where I grew up and where I yeah. live now, like within five hours in the marshes yeah. of the Chesapeake Bay yeah, in Eastern Shore.
1: Yeah, Same I mean,
0: thing, same thing. They were brought over.
1: Yeah, I love them personally. I think they're, they're mm. amazing, um, but can be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. Um, so what else have we got? We've got Chinese water deer um, or water deer. And they're kind of, they look quite like teddy bears. I mean, they're like, there's a few areas down in England where they've got them. They're quite very fluffy. They've got tusks, so like saber-toothed deer, mm. um, which are quite wow. co- quite cool. Um, and uh, and they they seem to be quite gregarious. You know, they, they gather together in quite large groups down there, and, and you'd often see them on sort of big flat fields. Um, and what else? Oh, muntjac as well as the other one. <clears throat> and they're like mm. a Reeves muntjac are kind of like a an Indian jungle deer so they breed mm. all year round they have no kind of set season they were brought over to the deer parks and escaped within really short order because they're they're quite small i mean they're the size of i don't know the size of a fox you know they're they're really quite neat um and again quite funny kind of usually like a single um horns like not a single horn obviously they've got they've got two horns but the, the horns are kind of like a single prong that points in the way uh they mm. call it called like devil deer they're, they're quite cute and they've got fangs as well the, the males so yeah and yeah
0: they're quite quite now, just challenging to be, <laughs> just to be clear and when you're saying they're brought over for the parks um yeah. for someone who might not be too well versed in yeah. in um uk history or or Uh, European history. So what do you you mean there? Do you mean that this, these were, um, you know, royal landlords? Um, I don't know what the right term would be like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's that kind of thing. I mean, it was, um, basically like private zoos. I mean, Mm. a lot of people were fascinated by deer and various other species. And, um, if you had the money, you built a big wall and you. It full, <laughs> filled the area full of all the interesting animals you could get brought over. Um, so the most famous parks we've got are, um, like, Richmond Park is, is kind of the one of the more famous ones, Woburn, uh, Woburn. where else, Cork Abbey, um, you know, various areas have got, got these sort of captive deer populations. Um, and then, like I said, yeah.
0: With, R- with Richmond it, Park, I... I'm very familiar with because um, my dad lives about three to four minutes away by car to Richmond Park (laughs) outside of London. But yeah, that's, I was just reading about it. I've been there a million times when I would visit my dad and my granny and my aunt. But um, yeah, that's 2,500 acres. It was a park created by Charles I in the Mm -hmm. 16-somethings. And basically they walled in 2,500 acres and they filled it with the red and the the Maybe the fallow. Yeah. yeah, And so now they're tame as can be. I mean, you can walk up and almost touch them. Yeah. Um, but um, so so when we're so when one is looking at old artwork, um yeah. you're probably looking at those natives, right? You would have been the red and it would have been the row. Yeah. If you're looking at artwork from like medieval times and <laughs> such.
1: Typically, yeah. Yeah. Um the occasionally fallow. You do see fallow in some of the, the older paintings. Um, because they were <clears throat> they were still quite, you know, quite popular to be hunted. And when people mm. refer to a heart, H-A-R-T, yep. it's usually a, a fallow that they're referring to, a fallow buck. Um,
0: Interesting. A yeah. fallow buck. Yeah. And and you guys don't say buck and doe, you say...
1: We've got um, stag and hind. or Stag and hind. So we've got stag and hind for the, the red deer and the sika deer, and then we've got bucks and does for the fallow, the muntjac, the Chinese water deer and the, what was the other one? <laughs> I'm sure there's another one. Whatever the other one was. <laughs> yeah, the red and the seeker are stags and hinds, but the rest are all bucks and does. Mm. And then heart. Or heart, um, was re- like I said, re- used to refer to like, a, a male fallow deer.
0: So cool. I love all those. I mean, you know, one of my favorite things with this podcast is, yeah. it- is interviewing people from like extremely, um, uh, culturally rich regions. Mm. Like I love language. I love regional dialects. So I love all the, the words, the special words for the regions. I I just love all that stuff. So you, we've talked a little bit about the deer. We've talked a little bit about some of the, um, flora. What about, um, what other, what are some other really, um, captivating animals you have in that area? Are there any large predators did there used to be? Were there wolves there at one time? Were there bears there at one time? Yeah, uh, is there yeah, a wildcat?
1: There, so, so wildcats there. There's sort of small, relic populations of wildcats. Um, very small, relic populations. I mean, they reckon there's about maybe about thirty odd, like pure wildcats. I've got my air wow. quotes going. Um, pretty much, they've they've been seen off by by both. Uh, disease by hybridization with domestic cats and by just lack of prey. I mean, as the as the sheep, the sort of desire for wool has faded, um, and the sheep have been taken off. The rabbit populations have disappeared as well, and that mm. was probably one of the primary sort of sources of prey for a lot of the wildcat populations with rabbits because mm. it was easy prey. So it's kind of one of these. You know, we know that sheep can be sheep overgrazing can degrade the land, but. By removing that, it's had un- unintended consequences for some other species. So that's quite interesting. Um,
0: that's fascinating. We have bobcats, and yeah. uh, you know, you can often find them in in um, you know in thick areas. Like I've trapped a bobcat, and it was yeah. in an area where I saw lots of rabbits. Yeah. So that yeah. makes a lot of sense. But your wildcat is very different looking than the bobcat. I mean, it almost looks like a house cat or a Cheshire they, cat, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. They're very much like a, a really chunky tabby, you know, that kind of, mm. but without without any white and a, a really thick, um, tail on them, you know, they're, yeah, they're quite, quite different to, to let's say a lynx, for example. Um, mm. and I mean, there's like, there, in fact, interestingly there was, and she was called Felicity and there was a, uh, cougar mountain lion. Um, who did actually used oh. to live in the Highlands. She actually escaped um, so, from, again, Wait, escaped a private, a private collection. Uh, yeah, I okay. mean, okay. When, it would have been, I don't know, years ago. But um, so she's, her, she's actually taxidermied and in the museum in Inverness. Um, wow.
0: So is that is that, I mean, so it sounds kind of terrible that that wildcat is basically on the verge of extinction.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's sort of schemes and, and, and sort of... Um, things underway, you get captive breeding populations. But I, I just think with the number of sort of feral domestic cats wandering about mm. it's mm-hmm. a bit of a, probably, probably a lost cause, but you know, I fully admire people for, for sort of carrying on the, the effort. Um,
0: Do you have so any other predators? Are there other, any other larger predators?
1: Other predators we've got, I mean, just, just like things like foxes and eagles, mm. and that sort of thing. I mean, we did used to have, Um, I mean, like I said, there's been bare bones found in Mm. what are called the bone caves over in Shnedam on the West Coast. Um, So it's a set of caves that have had, and and up at, um, on the West Coast, up on sort of North, Northwest Coast, it's a cave called Smoo. And um, they found bones and stuff in those caves as well. So it's, yeah. um, So there have been sort of large predators here um as the mm. current debate at the moment is whether we should be reintroducing them so should we have lynx mm. back should we have wolves back um interestingly the last wolf in scotland was apparently killed not far from where um where we're staying at the moment so um that's mm. that's quite cool it was apparently a there's actually a big stone at the side of the road you know sort of <laughs> almost like here lies the last wolf um that's awesome I mean, it's, it's quite an interesting place. We, there's actually a, like if we're going out hunting foxes, um, there's like a big, it's like a big cliff basically up up in the hills. Um, it's all these big boulders and stones and you can like quite easily imagine that it was a really good place for any kind of like, um, wolves to have a den. And apparently the, the sort of villagers down on the coast, the, the wolves have been predating and they managed to kill the, the dog wolf. Um, but there was the think, the thought that the, the, the what do you call it, the female was going to have pups. Um, mm. So the the villagers all said, right, OK, we're going to get the pitchforks ready and uh, we're going to head up to this area where we think it, that she's going to be. And apparently one guy had said, no, I know she's going to be at this particular area, this particular cave that's I just I just know I'm I'm the local hunter I know these things. They went yeah yeah we think you're wrong, so they all went off in one direction. He took his two young boys to go and um, to hunt the wolf, and uh, he went up up the strath up right up into the hills. found the found that gap in the rocks, found the cave, and he couldn't get in. He could hear the wolf pups, couldn't get in, and uh, so he sent his wee boys into this crack in the rocks with a knife and got them to kill the pups, and as he, he was standing there. The she-wolf came back apparently and made a dive for the gap in the rocks, and he managed to grab her by the tail. And the wee boys apparently in the cave said, "Daddy," he said, "Why is it why has it gone dark?" And he said, "If I lose my grip on this tail, you'll soon find out." <laughs> um, and he managed to kill. Apparently, that was the last wolf in Scotland was was killed there um, by the wow. hunter and his two boys. Um, well, that's
0: some good regional folklore, right there. What cool. time period was that? Uh,
1: probably seventeen hundreds.
0: Seventeen hundreds. Yeah. Okay, so they held out pretty long.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, it was it was quite a long time before the, the last ones were were killed. So, um, but I mean it must have been the last the last dregs really of the population. Um, but um, I think it was one of those things that was there was just competition for us, basically. Mm. Um, it, it wasn't any major spite against the wolf per se, or they'd heard Little mm-hmm. Red Riding Hood. I think it was, like I said, winters here were were so hard I mean people used to bring their animals in the house with them you know and by the end of the winter your your cow would be because you'd had to bleed it into your porridge to try and get some protein in your diet by the end of the winter you'd have to carry the cow out of the house you know (laughs) um so you can imagine if your cow had had a calf and that was your kind of selling that calf was your cow having milk and you having something to sell at market and if the wolf came along and ate the wolf came along and ate your cow or killed the calf you'd basically starve so you can understand the kind of the pressures that would lead people to sort of seek to extirpate a, a predator like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean when it's, it's when tough. you're at the level of survival, it's just it first come the first priority is survival. Mm-hmm. And so you're not thinking about wildlife as Absolutely. being your your buddy or wanting to, you know, protect the critters that at the level of survival you feel up against. But you said something there. Mm. Did you say <clears> bleed your cow?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it,
0: they would it, cut open the cow and
1: yeah, just let a little bit of blood out. Um, that was apparently quite a common thing. I think the Maasai still do it as well. That's that's something they do is, is oh my god, blood bloodletting. So not enough that you'd ever kill it, but just enough that it was just something to keep you keep you going over the winter. Just a bit of blood in your porridge or maybe your black pudding.
0: <laughs> yeah, is that maybe that where the where the black puddings and stuff like that kind of stems from? Is some of that.
1: very possibly mixing it with the oats just anything to get that bit of protein you know just to just to keep going
0: wow that is incredible
1: bloody Um, tough up here bloody tough living i mean it's again like you said you know you're looking around it's there's not a lot that you could actually besides maybe some like some blueberries like bilberries that we call them um there's not a lot to really forage (laughs) you know it's not like a particularly rich environment for kind of that side of things. So, you know, you're very much mm. reliant on what you could grow, what you could sort of rear. Um, mm. So,
0: well, yeah. you, you make, you know, when you see a, a landscape void of trees, you just mm. wonder how people in the past, how the hell did they heat their home? Were they burning the peat? Yeah. It's like, we're, wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that in,
1: peat cutting is one of these things. It's, it, there's very few people do it now because it is just bloody hard work. Um, where you, you basically go along, you remove the top layer of moss, um, because that's still the, the active growing part. You take that to one side, and then you basically cut your peats and you g- cut it into like sort of um, like bricks, almost. Set those out on top to dry. Um, they'll spend you know a few weeks or months drying out. Um, you replace that top layer of where you've dug, so mm-hmm. it keeps in theory keeps growing and stays moist. The thing with peat is that it stays hydrated. Once it dries, it's done absolutely you just killed it. While you can keep it that hydration level up, then it, it remains at it, you know, it can start accruing carbon and keep growing. Um, so what you do is you dry out your peats on the on the side of your and you can see up on the I mean, you can even see it on Google Maps if you sort of go over sort of north of Scotland you quite see these sort of um cuttings in, in the in these peat areas, not that far from a lot of the communities and um, you know it's where people would obviously get their fuel. And it was quite a community That's event. That's incredible. Quite a community event. I mean, you know, it. like I said, it's, it's hard work. So you'd have as many people as you could to go out and give a hand to get the pizza. in.
0: So you and would have be, these bri- briquettes yeah. basically that you put <clears throat> in your hearth.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Extraordinary. Yep. I've never heard anything like that. That's yep. really fascinating.
2: Yeah.
0: That is really fascinating. <laughs> um, God, I love hearing about stuff like that. Just those little details. Like that's mm. what I like about history. I don't really care about big wars and no.
2: politics.
0: I don't care about it at all. I care about just like how have people in different places throughout history done day to day life.
1: Yeah. I know. It's it's fascinating, actually. It's really, really cool. I think it's quite nice actually, like talking about it. Cause I sort of take a lot of it for granted because you've grown up with it.
0: <laughs> of course. And of then all course. of a sudden
1: it's like, oh, it is quite neat, isn't it? or quite sort of specific to place. I think that's quite nice.
0: Definitely specific to place. Um, Hey, speaking of that, you mentioned foraging. So um, a a lot of this audience and a lot of people Mm. who've hired me have been herbalists, have Mm -hmm. been people working with um, the um, conservation of, so where we live in Appalachia is like Mm. an extraordinarily biodiverse place with an incredible amount of medicinal plants. So foraging and um, herbalism are really big in my region. Mm. Um, so I'm sure there are people listening who would love to hear about um, what you're starting to talk about regarding foraging. So, mm. what are some of those plants that are edible? And you know, what would you do with them? Would you make jellies? Would you, you know, what is it?
1: Yeah. Um, oh God. So we we have got it's an area I wish I knew more about. I'm going to admit mm. that straight away. It's sort of like said, no the, hunt, the hunting side of things is probably where I'm more at home um, and the sort of farming side after that. But the foraging side of things we've got our our fungi. Um, so all the sort of, I mean, I only go for the things I definitely know what I'm picking. <laughs> oh um,
2: yeah. I am, you
1: know, the mushrooms are kind of one of those things that scare me ever so slightly. You sort of see, I've got a, a, a friend who's, um, who's very into her sort of mushrooms and fungi and, you know, is is quite keen to sort of try all sorts of stuff and I'm kind of thinking, Oh my god, I <laughs> you know, good for you. And I know she does her research and all the rest of it, but no, I'll stick with my chanterelles and my seps um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the safe stuff. Um so we've got the fungi, we've got different uh, quite a few different berries. Um so I don't know, I mean all the sort of commonplace things like brambles, um mm-hmm. elderberries, round berries, oh, um cool bilberries and then I think there's like there's other ones like the the elite so things like crowberry bearberry mm, um, okay. they'll eat them I I don't even know about if they're they're probably edible for humans they just probably don't taste very nice or aren't very good for you um, but I I don't think they like any they're not wildly toxic <laughs> um mm-hmm. then we've got like um some little isolated populations of, of I think they're called cloudberries. So like an orange, okay. it's like an orange raspberry kind of thing um, they're quite neat so we don't get so many of them here. they're quite popular in Scandinavia. They've got quite large populations of them and that's one of the things that like, people say that we should have more of it and it's overbrazen by deer this means that we don't have so many hmm. um, what else? So a lot of the things people would do with like the the round, um of that like the round berries they get made into like a, a with, usually combined with apple to make a jelly um elderberries well elderflower people will uh, make cordials and wines with that um sure or i saw somebody making like um because like, they grow as like a like a head like there's like one stalk and then loads of little stalks off that and like loads of little flowers and, and people like taking the whole thing and like uh battering it and like having elderflower fritters which i thought was quite quite cute um
0: well that's amazing i've never heard yeah that.
1: yeah i thought that was quite neat um what else? we wait
0: so you're saying they basically fry up the the whole head with the flowers yeah. on it
1: yeah Apparently I, I don't know what it tastes like but it's quite cool We idea.
0: usually wait for it to bury because yeah. those berries make a syrup that's incredibly medicinal and yeah. uh immune boosting and if you try yeah. to buy a bottle of it at the health food store it's like yeah. twenty twenty eight dollars or something insane yeah. for. Um, well, let's get in, let's get into the, your, you know, what your passion with the deer stalking. Um, uh, well, one thing that is, is cool is seeing, um, how different deer hunting is in different Mm -hmm. places where I'm at, um, on the East coast of America, you know, the main way to do it is sitting in a, in a stand. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. I've done it a few times and I really hate it. I like just sitting at the bottom of a tree. I guess like an old timer or, uh, trying to walk around slowly. And I'm not a very good deer hunter, so (laughs) that's probably why, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) how does, how do you, how do you hunt in the highlands? Um, first of all, I love all the wardrobe. I like the European style of hunting clothes a lot more. I like the solid greens. I like Mm -hmm. the the caps. Um, you sent me a picture of you, um, instead of like the modern binos, binoculars, Mm -hmm. you're holding this beautiful long telescopic um telescope yeah spyglass yeah um so how so what how does a deer stalker stalk a deer i mean it's obviously you're not creeping around in dense forest you're out on these huge um heath heath barrens or whatever however you pronounce whatever you want to those big open lands so let's hear how does a hunt go down over there
1: lot of our hunting is is observation um you know i mean the the thing we're lucky about here is that we can we can see the deer it's not like you're in thick woodland and like some guys have to work in thick woodland and you know they they adapt to that but where we are on the open hill it is open (laughs) there's no hiding and you can see the deer and they can see you so it's kind of an interesting dynamic i mean if we take clients out we get a lot of scandinavians who are in like dense woodland if they come over for a stag stalk they're kind of like oh there's a stag and we're like yeah it's fine it's cool. Well, there's another one. I'd like, yeah, it's fine. But what we do is is very often like um, observe the deer, see where they are, and depending on like the, the time of year. So, say for if we're taking a client out stag stalking or just ourselves, you know, we've got a very specific um, age criteria and and like body type of deer we're looking for 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 a client. Um, so you spend a lot of time, you know, looking through your herds. When it comes to like the rut, you know the breeding season, the females will pick an area, um, and the stags will come to them. I mean, everybody thinks the stag's going to run the show. Um, the, the stags will then sort of jostle back and forth between themselves, and you get, you know, all the, all the boys will try and sort of weigh up who's the more dominant, who's the strongest, the fittest. And it, you know, a stag will hold a what they call a harem of of hinds. Um, he'll try and breed with as many as possible, but. After a bit, he just gets tired and a, a new stag will come in who just sees him off. And, you know, it's how you ensure a good sort of mix of genetics. Um, so we're looking when we're out on a day on hill for, you know, all these different groups of, of females and what stags are near them and around them. Uh, we're looking for sort of older males, something that's, I mean, our stags will, what we're looking for is sort of maybe 9, 10, 11 plus years up. Um, ideally sort of, like, you know... Yeah, ideally about 10 years upwards. And you can tell that from, like, you know, the sort of the, the way the antlers have grown, the body shape, the, just their whole demeanour. Um, and it's sort of one of those things you just have to look at deer a lot <laughs> and get a bit obsessive about it to sort of identify those characteristics. So we'll, be, we'll go around, we'll look at all these different groups. Um, like I say, we're looking at an area that's, you know... Like sort of fifteen thousand acres, so it's it's quite a large area to be looking around in. Um, we'll typically you know start working from sort of roads that are on the on that area, um, using like you know binoculars to see where the groups are, and then a, the spyglass, the, the sort of um, Lord Nelson parts of the Caribbean style um, telescope to try and get a better look. Then at each individual stag that we sort of identified, and then after that, basically the stalker will head out with with the client um, and basically creep along, um, staying out of sight as best you can, um, you know, until you're making that final approach and at which point there's a lot, very often you have to drop right down onto your belly and belly crawl your way um, right up, you know, as close as you can towards the animals. I mean, for us, the ideal distance is, you know, 100 meters. That's the ideal distance. Um, But, you know, it's it's called stalking for a reason and the, the closer you can get you know is sometimes the better um so yeah yeah it's it's quite an interesting probably quite a different style of quite, probably quite a different style of stalking and it can take a long time i mean you know you might get within you know your sort of 200 meters of your deer quite quickly but then that next sort of 100 meters of crawling can take you know a couple of hours you might end up having to lie down and wait until because your stag's sleeping and you're you're not going to get a good sh- shot while he's, you know, not providing you with a, a clear, safe shot. So, yeah, <laughs> it's it's it could be a bit of a strategy game. You're but you're very often seeing your deer all the time that you're hunting.
2: Um,
1: the famous one is is where you get blooded after you you take your first animal. That's that's kind of the the big one. Um, usually. You try and do it in a way that they don't realise what's going to happen to them, <laughs> so that they'll, you know, if if we're out guiding somebody, um, you know, you say to them, right, can you just while you, well, well, we call it growling when you're taking out the green offal. Um, you say, oh, can you just hold that leg up? And you know, you scoop everything out. And you've got some blood on your hands and grab their face. It's it's kind of a, a bit unceremonious, but it's a kind of uh, kind of rough and ready process I suppose Um, but it's kind of it's kind of a big deal especially like shooting a first stag um, shooting a first hind that's kind of thing you wouldn't ever do it after that Um, that's kind of the big one if we get like say um, usually like German clients um, they, they do this all sort of the last bite they'll take a piece of the heather and put it in the animal's mouth and sort of take the hat off and you know take a moment to just sort of salute the animal almost which is quite nice I quite like that it's that respect that it was once a living thing. You have kind of taken its life, so you, you have to give it a minute. It's quite nice. Usually the, the stalker will have a person called a ghillie, um, which is a Gaelic word, meaning boy. But, I mean, I was a ghillie when I was training. It's just become the name of it, like a trainee or somebody who stays behind with either the horse or the... Um, the quad bike. Um, <clears throat> so I mean, if you're if you're lucky and you've got someone to ghillie for you, then they'll come. We can give them a shout on the radio once the the animal's down and give them directions and and we'll extract the whole animal. Because um, <clears throat> I mean, most of, most venison in, in Scotland is sold to a game dealer. I think unlike you guys, we can sell it and it, for like public consumption. I mean, we'll we'll take a few ourselves for uh, like a summer stag or you know, early winter hind for, for the freezer. Um, but most of the deer that gets shot um, will take it back. You know, on the hill what we do is, um, we'll bleed it. We'll take out the, the green offal, so the sort of, um, the esophagus, and then the sort of stomach right the way up to the back passage. So we'll take all that out on the hill, just to minimize the risk of sort of anything bursting and con- contamination. And then once they get back to the larder, we'll take out you know all the rest of the what's cooked—the red offal, so the heart, lungs, kidneys, all that side of things. Um, it's just traditionally been the way to do it. The legs come off, heads come off at the larder, like a butcher room kind of thing. So uh, just you know, usually like a, a clean space you can hose down. There's a winch to lift the animal up, you know, all that sort of stuff. A cutting bench. A lot of the difference with like us versus you is. We're approaching, or we have to approach it from a like a perspective of of overabundance, whereas I think historically you guys have had to approach it from a from an, an angle of like like managing a finite resource because of like historic overhunting. Um, so I think just the sort of cultural difference probably there is is that we're having to manage it from. From that view that we have, you know, too many, um, it depends on what your kind of management objectives are on your land. I mean, some people, you know, having any deer is too many, and for other people, especially if they have like an estate where one of the mainstays of the income is to produce, you know, animals for clients to come and hunt. Um, you need a certain number of animals to sustain that population, so you know, you always have conflict there between people who want no deer and people who need a certain number for, to meet their sort of business model, so to speak. so I mean my yeah my my kind of introduction into this whole thing is it's very kind of untraditional I mean a lot like like in the UK a lot of people and typically guys will get into hunting because they've got you know a family member like a father uncle whatever um whereas I came into it from a sort of a a land management conservation kind of background and interest um I mean I grew up as a vegetarian vegetarian so I was like 18 um I started to look at, um, like just getting an interest in like land use, um, and food miles and sustainability and all that sort of, like sort of, I was quite sort of eco green minded, um, you know, and for a long time quite I felt like being vegetarian was the thing to do. Um, and, uh, my, my folks had started to keep a sort of small flock of rare breed sheep. They'd started eating meat, um, and they had their own sheep kind of killed for the freezer and that was that was the way that they did it and I, I was sort of sitting one day having this sort of corn chicken replacement chunk things um as part of a meal i was kind of thinking you know they're sitting there eating sort of this roast lamb which i've seen from like lamb through to you know on the table maybe maybe me getting this stuff in plastic wrap is perhaps not the best option for me right now right here um, and it was sort of started this whole process of thinking anyway, shortcut to sort of 18 months, I'd moved from I grew up on Orkney, north off the north coast I moved down to the, to the North Highlands and uh, I was doing some volunteering for a conservation charity mentioned to my boss there, you know, about if I was going to eat meat I wanted to do the whole thing, field to fork, I'd been thinking about it a lot and I thought, right, okay, if I can't press the button I shouldn't eat meat that's the kind of thing. If I'm going to eat it, I need to know that I can do it. Um, and that was kind of my principle I set for myself was like, you know, I need to know that I can do this. Otherwise, I'll just go back to being a vegetarian and just suck it up. And um, he kind of said to me, right, okay, well, we'll go out stalking one day. And uh, right, okay, that's fine. Didn't think much of it because people sort of very often say to you, oh, you'll have to come out sometime. Um, and nothing comes of it. Anyway, on this occasion, I got a text message to sort of all that weekend saying would you like to go out hunting tomorrow yeah okay cool um, caught the bus got picked up that was fine we went out into this um, sort of a mix of hill and woodland area and um, after sort of this quite a long day we were out sort of like nine and a half hours we'd had a couple of you know fluffed stalks didn't work out and then finally sort of cl- almost closed the day and you know there was a crept up this bit sort of almost heading back towards you know back towards the cars to go home and uh this you know young 10 point stag walks out of the brush and and uh starts roaring as we sort of scuttle forward and get into places like take your time and, and take a shot um and i did and it was it was very much like i was taken aback by how matter of fact the whole process was i think it sort of like in my mind i wasn't really sure what to expect um you know because like if you grew up vegetarian as well and i think as as a kid you're quite open to a lot of the the press about sort of anti-hunting side of things animal rights side of things um and that sort of equating sort of sustainable hunting and everything like that meat eating with like the worst of the worst of vivisection and all these horrible things. So like, to be in that position where I was like pressing the, pressing the button and seeing this animal run and drop, um, it was a really... It was quite profound because it was that thing like, okay, right, that's interesting. Okay, and then sort of getting to it. Probably the shock of seeing it, actually. Um, and then sort of quite a whirlwind process of you know, taking it back to the larder, breaking it down, getting it hung up, ready to sell, and um, yeah, it was it was that that whole thing of like it, it was quite clinical. I think that surprised me as much as anything. Um, and then as I've gone on and, and done more and more, it's, it's the then the art of the process rather than just like you know going out and, and stalking a thing.
0: Well, very interesting to hear about that first hunt, because I definitely know what you mean. there. And sometimes there is, um, you know, sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel, I'm a very emotional guy, I'm a Pisces, Mm. but um, (laughs) sometimes I feel like you're supposed to have this intense feeling Mm. and, you know, of remorse or something like that. Mm. And for sure, I've had... I've had experiences that are very disturbing, especially with like trap, with trapping, like trapping can be pretty intense, but there are other times where it is extremely clinical. Yeah. And of course you you're so appreciative of having the meat and you're so aware that you've taken life, but sometimes it is exactly like you said, it's just so clinical. It's just like that the thing happened, it Mm. happened smoothly. There's no, the creature was not, it was not in any excess, you know, it didn't, suffer have nope. a long period of suffering it's just mm-hmm. yeah those are the clinical ones maybe are kind of the ones that go really well
1: <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, clinical's the best word i've got it's, it's like it's smooth I find that, yeah it's smooth i think that, that it's when it goes right and it's and like you know if you set it up and, and things go well and you're trained and you're you're confident in your abilities and all these things and you sort of minimize the chance for things to go wrong but it's like you sometimes have days when it's, even when you've done all the things right, it just doesn't work out. and the hunt just does not work. And, you know, it's those days you have to just go home, you know, because it's, you just can't push it. But like, you do get times when it's, yeah, it just kind of flows. It's, it's a really weird state. Um, it's almost like, I find the thing as well, like being out on the hill, You it's very much like, you can't, you can't think about other stuff when you're out there. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't be sitting thinking, oh, I need to do my tax returns or, you know, I need to get that done for, for work. You very much like to get in, in the zone with this whole hunting experience. I mean, like I said, we don't have large predators here um, in, in the UK. And it's, you know, all that sort of weather, they would even have an impact on deer side. You know, we are kind of the predator of these animals. Um, and,
0: and always have been.
1: And always have been and hopefully always will be. Um,
0: (laughs) I, I I know what you, I know what you mean regarding that kind of a bit of a meditation because, um, you know, I just did a recent podcast with one of our friends who's a caver Mm -hmm. and, you know, he said the exact same thing Mm -hmm. when you're caving all your worries, you're so present and, um, you know, I struggle with things like meditation, like Mm. forcing myself to meditate or to do breath work. I know of all, you know, I've listened to all of the incredible benefits that those things Mm. have but I struggle with, um, forcing myself to do that stuff. Whereas stuff like really hard exercise mm-hmm. in the woods, yeah. um, hunting, you know, I, I was yeah. just on a, a successful, uh, bear hound hunt this past weekend. Yeah. My first time seeing a bear be yeah. shot, which was yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. But, um, you know, we hiked 11 miles mm-hmm. and it was the, some of the hardest exercising in my entire <laughs> life. I didn't know if I was going to pass out. I was like praying yeah. to keep going. And, you know, you're not thinking about anything else. Like I had, no. been, pretty mo- I had been pretty moody the mm. whole week, feeling kind of sorry for myself mm. and just being a bit of a bitch. And, <laughs> you know, then, you know, that day it was like, you are so present. And I think yeah. in our modern era, I think these activities that keep us present are ex- extremely meaningful.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's such a rare opportunity to be able to be, yeah, to be so present in a moment. And it's It's almost impossible to describe to people who haven't like done it how intense it is because I mean when you are there I said you just can't think about anything else I mean you know you're you're tracking you're thinking you have to really think yourself inside the head of these animals because like I said I mean when we're out we can very often see them so you're having to look at them read them think well okay and if we're like say hunting males you're you're still hunting females because they hang out with the females and they're so much more aware than the boys. It's just the (laughs) sad, brutal Mm. fact of nature. When the, when the stags are rutting, they're thinking about one thing. Whereas the hinds are still thinking about staying alive. Um,
0: It's probably the same for humans.
1: Pretty much, I think. (laughs) Nine (laughs) times out of 10. So it's kind of one of these, it's it's kind of one of these things. You you really have to kind of think yourself inside the head of these animals. And at the end of the day, we're stepping into their world. You know, they're in their world 24 seven, you know, and they're, their capacity to sort of pick out what changes in their landscape, you know, is is just intense. And and you have to kind of really visualise what they're thinking, what they're seeing and try and be invisible. It's a really cool process, um, you know, when you're actually kind of, like I said, when you're doing it. And yeah, like I said, you can't kind of, I don't know, time on the hill, even if you didn't come home with anything is, is always good head clearing space.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. Definitely. No doubt. Um something that popped in my head is I don't see you wearing tweeds, but I mm. know some people hunt in that. Is that yep. actually like a form of camouflage r- with the uh with the grasses? Is this very structure- often, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's okay. um fascinating. It's kind of the traditional kind of clothing. I mean it's 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 wool, so in theory, it sort of keeps you warm and all the rest of it. It's pretty cold and wet, even with the best wool in the world. Mm. Um, but it is traditional, and some guys do do wear it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, each each estate will will have their own tweed, which is very often kind of woven to match the colours of the estate. Um, oh, really? Which is quite cool, you know. I mean, like, I saw it, there was a, someone who's he's got an estate down in the Cairngorms kind of area, and they always thought their estate didn't have a tweed. So they got one made up and this woman came up and sort of spent a few days sort of going around the place and picking up the colours and the hues and she produced this tweed and once she'd produced it, they were going through it just happenstance might be going through like an attic and found a box which had the old estate tweed in it. And it was almost an identical match that she'd managed to produce without knowing about this other tweed that had been made. So it's yeah, quite cool. Very much kind of I, same reader on the place I
0: had absolutely no idea about that Mm -hmm. so it's almost like a family crest like a shield
1: that kind of idea yeah it's um I mean some of them are quite like the weirdest kind of color selection I mean there's some of the sort of like quite a a yellowy greeny color and that sort of thing and it doesn't look at all like it should be in any way camouflaged but actually when you see them on the ground that they're kind of meant to be on it works it's Mm. it's quite a it's quite a cool thing
0: um you know what it, it reminds me this morning so this morning i've kind of befriended a uh, a guy here in west virginia he's a mm-hmm. coal miner but he has a uh um he has a hunting camp just down the road from where we live yeah. and he is he does a lot of like coyote trapping up mm-hmm. in the mountains and he yeah. invited me to come out this morning and i just got to watch him make some of the coyote sets
2: yeah and
0: yeah. um i you know i just told him some of the topics i like on the po- on this podcast and mm-hmm. how I'm interested in folk ways. Yeah. And what you reminded me of when you talked about the tweed was he told me this morning that um uh like traditionally the women like so his mother
2: mm-hmm.
0: when she bakes a pie, yeah. I guess you pop the the crust to let to release the hot air, I think yeah. is what you do.
2: Yeah.
0: But you you do a design mm-hmm. and his mother does the family design that the the great great grandmother did? So when you're at like a function, <laughs> yeah. you know whose whose pie it is by this signature <laughs> that's that, quite that's been kind of cut in the crust. Yeah, amazing. So you're reminding me of that with like the the way we signify our tribe in a way, like yeah. with your tweed. Yeah. You're you saying, oh, hey, look, I see that guy from a hundred, y- well, a hundred feet away. Like, yeah. oh, I know where that guy's from. I know what thing. That's that's really fascinating.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's quite cool. Um, it's quite cool, and like I said, it's the fact that it's matched to the the environment of the. So it's not even like the like the tartans are kind of very much like a, a clan thing, and that's distinctive. But I think the tweed is kind of a a neat thing in itself. That it's yeah, it matches very much matches the kind of the environment that that person's working in. And that's quite a neat neat touch.
2: Mm.
0: Are there any other cultural things that I might be unaware of that? Might be fascinating to an American audience.
2: Oh God! Like Uh,
0: the tweed. You said the blood on the face. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, you talked about non-hunting related, but um, using the sod briquettes for heating the home. I mean, all of that stuff. I Mm -hmm. think is extremely fascinating. Yeah. Um, Well, this is a bit of a stretch, and might not be your interests. But Mm -hmm. you know, I love mythology.
2: Yeah.
0: I love um, religion, and and you know, not that I'm very not that I'm like academically trained in these things. I just, as an amateur, I try yeah. to read about them and find connections. Um, well, so one thing I've been thinking about coming into this conversation, reading some of your blog, following you on Instagram yeah, is, um, and I mentioned this on one of my former podcasts, there, there's this like Joseph Campbell, if you know who he is, he's a mm-hmm. comparative mythologist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either him or Carl Jung, the psychologist. They had this idea to know what myth that you're living in yeah. so that you know, like some of the, some of the th- the things that will happen in your life, some of the obstacles, mm-hmm. the archetypal ob- obstacles. So thinking about you, you know,
2: yeah,
0: you know, I might be projecting my own kind of like romantic <laughs> ideas, but you know, I, it's like I feel like you're like this follower of Diana or of mm-hmm. Artemis, you know, mm-hmm. this yeah. protector and pr- this protector huntress. I just think that's absolutely fascinating. Is th- are there any um are there any s- This is a bit of a stretch, but are there any Scottish, um, Celtic uh, mythologies that around the hunt, or are there any like folk heroes around the hunt in Scotland, anything like that? Um, You know, St. Hubert, the patron saint of hunting in Belgium has been an interest of mine lately. Anything coming to mind?
1: I think what we got, I mean, probably the closest hunter, huntress kind of Figure is probably, I think, Skadi, the sort of Norse, uh, she was a, a sort of Norse ice giantess, I think, who was a hunter. It's, just, it's all the, the, the god of hunters, um, or the goddess of hunters. So that's probably the sort of geographically the closest we've got here. Um, I don't know. No, I've there's never that heard many, of that. That's amazing. Yeah, there's not that many kind of folk, like folk hero kind of... Um, no, probably not, I'm afraid. It's, uh, if there were, that, then they're not kind of that well-known. Um,
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: And I'm pretty... Now, I'm a wh- little bit nerdy about that. <laughs> so that's my own way. So that's probably the closest I can think of, like I said, geographically. Um, there have been now, hunters. You- I mean, there's always hunters in like Scotland. I think in the Highlands in particular, in a UK context, it's probably one of the last kind of reserves where... It, Most people know somebody who hunts or stalks or, you know, has a, has a gun in the house, so to speak. Um, whereas like for most people in the UK, it's, it's a really small proportion, you know, of the 65 million people it's like 0.001% of the population go have a hunting license, you know, it's
0: (laughs) okay. That's extremely fascinating. So where you, where you are, so in your particular little region, Mm it's totally normal hunting is totally acceptable and totally normal
1: yeah I mean it's kind of one of those things you know you sort of go to the doctors and they say you know you try and find out your career or whatever and uh and you say oh yeah deer stalker and they're kind of like all right cool you know it's not like kind like it's not a weird thing or you know if you go to the you go to the store and you've got sort of like hill boots and you know sort of yeah, you know, there's a sort of uniform of like the deer hunter kind of uniform, and if you go to the shop wearing that, it's not like anybody kind of raises an eyebrow at it. Whereas, like, I think if you're sort of further down south, going to the shop like that, you know, it, it would be calling the police on you. <laughs> it's a bit of
0: fun. oh yeah, it, you know, well, same it, here.
1: Yeah, so it's it's kind of a yeah, we're quite lucky really being here. It's a bit more people are that bit more in touch with it. You know, they like having venison. You know, and <laughs> mm. it's, yeah, they're aware of where these things come from
0: um oh yeah i mean where i live in in rural virginia rural west mm -hmm. virginia i mean every single person has a gun the grandma that lives by herself has tons of guns um everyone hunting is 100 percent part of normal life they either do it or their family members do it um um oh man Uh, (laughs) what was i gonna say (laughs) do you Um, do you have ferrets i saw in one of your photographs yeah i've got a couple of ferrets yeah Wow.
1: Yeah. Two um, ferrets and three dogs.
0: <laughs> wow. You know, I just, so I got this uh, medieval, this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been translated into modern English, but it is, the author is from like the 1300s. Mm-hmm. And it's an illuminated book with illustrations and text telling you how people were hunting in the 1300s under mm-hmm. some lord. Yeah. And they would use ferrets yeah. And they would take ferrets and they'd put a muzzle over them. And then they would, lo- you know, funnel them into a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, at the other exits, they would cover them with nets. And yeah. I guess the ferret would put would drive them out.
1: Incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's still, I mean, it's still quite a popular thing to do. Not popular, like massively popular, but the people who do it love doing it. Um, but wow. yeah, fer- ferreting is still quite a, quite a thing. Um, you just have to be careful. Have you ever done you- it? I haven't yet, no, that's why I've got my two girls, it's uh, it just, I haven't had time yet, but, um, yeah, it's, you have to be, make sure that they're not going down the hole hungry, because um, otherwise they'll just catch and kill a rabbit, and then you have to go back a week later and try and get your ferret out of the hole, because they just won't come out to eat have it. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a, a balancing act. Um yeah, yeah, but apparently produces a nice... Like, for eating rabbits, it produces a really nice clean carcass as well because they, they go straight into the nets and you can just dispatch them then and there. Um, Incredible. Rather than sort of, you know, shooting them or anything. So, yeah, it's quite a nice, neat way to... If especially if you've got quite a population of rabbits, which we, we've had that myxomatosis, which was a, an introduced disease into the rabbit population, mm. so a lot of areas lost their rabbits altogether. Mm. Um, so we're actually quite lucky here that we've actually got a population that's sort of making a comeback. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. But I do like I do actually like rabbits. It's quite a quite a nice. Mix. Oh, it's
0: delicious. I mean that it blows my mind that humans figured out how to domesticate animals to become eaten. So mm-hmm. like turn things into cows and 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 then that they figured out how to take wild animals. Yeah and domesticate them as hunting partners like that blows my mind like i've had a hunting dog now for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. just the idea that humans figure that out they figure out how to make falcons get food for them they figure out how to make ferrets get food for them this (laughs) this stuff blows my mind
1: no i i'm I'm totally with you it's it's absolutely amazing um i I can't imagine being without my dogs Uh, having that insurance that they're there um yeah, you know, I mean, we only ever use them as like a backup option if you need to track something that's wounded or something like that. But even knowing that they're there, it's just such a reassurance.
0: Okay, speaking of dogs, you reminded me of something. Maybe this is kind of how we can close-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, you reminded me of what I was going to say, and it was mm-hmm. about dogs. And right. so you were talking about how where you are in Scotland, it's very normal and socially acceptable to be a hunter, whereas not the case, you know, I'm sure in urban areas. Yeah. So, pretty similar here in America. In rural areas, it's totally normal. Um, yeah. Cities, obviously not. Um, yeah. But so, recently, I interviewed a woman here in Virginia, um, well, over the state line of Virginia, who does the fox hunts on horseback. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they do it like, you know, it's like the 1700s. They dress, mm-hmm. you know, they dress to the nines. They look incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they no longer kill the fox here. It's uh, – yeah they chase a real fox, but once it goes to ground, they call yeah. off the hounds and it's over. Um, yeah. So before I interviewed her, I watched a documentary, an English documentary mm-hmm. about just that culture of the, the mm-hmm. fox hunt in England. And um, it was so heartbreaking to me because you had these really aggressive, really almost violent urban activists mm-hmm. who were yeah. screaming, at these rural people, and it's like grannies yeah. and their kids and <laughs> and little daughters, and I can understand that you know, having been urban, I lived in New York for ten yeah. years. yes, the idea that one day I would see a bear die it is yeah. brutal, and I can understand that that it does seem you could see it as cruel if you've never mm-hmm. experienced it and you're not connected to that life way, but to yeah. me, it was so upsetting to yeah. see what happens so basically the documentary was following these normal followers these are not super rich elite people they were just english farmers yeah. who do the fox hunt and basically yeah. the documentary was following them as law was being passed to make it illegal to do the fox hunt and yeah. seeing through the documentary just when you take culture from people mm. when you rob people of culture yeah. they become like soulless you take this you've taken the soul away from people and it is like a horrifying thing to see Mm -hmm. and you know obviously empires throughout history one of their tactics is you take away the culture of people to see it in a documentary it's so heartbreaking so Mm -hmm. i mean it's i'm just so happy that uh where you are these Mm kind of ancient ways are still preserved
2: the culture is preserved uh,
1: to, to a certain extent, I mean, like, with the fox hunting, I mean, we've got, like, the, the mounted hunts, the, the ones on horseback, are, are typical for down south. Whereas up here, we've got um, what we call foot packs. So you'll have a guy who will have a kennel of, of foxhounds um, and will, you know, like, say, all the estates in our area, all the landowners in our area will pay a fee every year, a subscription, and this guy will come along and... You know, with his with hounds and hunt through all the woodlands. Um, and all the people who pay into that sort of club will come along, take shotguns, rifles, whatever, you know, and and go out and station around so that if a fox breaks cover, then it can be shot. Um, and um, what's sort of gone through Scottish government at the mm-hmm. moment, and very much driven by that same sort of um, sort of anti-hunting line they did a big review into hunting with dogs and decided that, um, I mean, the guy who did the review, um, he basically said that actually having, you know, a set number of dogs is, is a good thing because it ensures that the fox is pushed out of cover quicker and the whole thing's over quicker and it's more humane. And because of the whole sort of anti-hunting sentiment, um, the government said, right, okay, maximum two dogs. So what it means is that all these packs have now got to basically shut up, shop. They're done. Mm. Um, which, you know, is, like you said, it's that, that part of culture just being kind of forcibly moved, which is pretty pretty sad, actually. Because, I mean, you know, very often no no fox would be shot at the end of the day and it was just a good social event for people to kind of meet up and check in one another. Like, what is a, you know, it can be quite an isolated job and, and kind of career. Um, so, yeah. Our... yeah, we're kind of, we're still facing that. We're definitely facing that, um, even, even the, up here. <laughs>
0: And, 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 you know, to me, these things are rituals. You know, there's, mm-hmm. they're ancient rituals. Certainly, right, when I you. got it, when I got into it with the dogs, I was having grown up in the suburbs, lived in a city. I was very uncertain about having the dog involvement. It seemed a little yeah. barbaric, it seemed a yeah. little savage. And, yeah. um, I still think there are elements of that. Like, I do feel like the hunter, allows this spirit this like savage spirit almost to go channel through the animal i feel like Mm -hmm. but um but you know once you start learning and looking at history you see they all over the world humans have been hunting with dogs everywhere oh totally well you know i interviewed a native american guy cherokee he said that they used to they used to train wolves to hunt Mm -hmm. in the appalachians with the hunters you know you just pick a place in the world and you'll see that the hunters have always had a pack of dogs with them to help. And so it's mm-hmm. a, it's an, kind of an ancient, and I'm sure you feel oh, it totally. with your dogs, that bond.
1: 100%. 100%. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I, you look anywhere in the world. I mean, I follow a guy who's based over in, um, in, I think in Iran, you know, does sort of like horseback archery and stuff, but he's got his hunting dogs. And, you know, like, it's just so much part and parcel of what... What well, you do. Um, they're just partners in, in kind of putting food on the table. It's such a primal kind of thing.
0: 100%. You know,
2: absolutely,
1: absolutely is. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if we're sitting there at home, got the fire lit, you know, they've got the wee one there, we've got the dogs, us, everybody's had their tea, everybody's fed, and they were all gathered around the fire. And you think this scene hasn't really changed much besides, you know, the carpets and the sofa. <laughs> it's not really changed much in the last you know, hundred thousand years. Absolutely.
0: And that is what I've been really putting a lot of effort and thinking about lately. I just watched a documentary about Merlin and in it, yeah. they said, said a quote that was just like staggering to me and relates to kind of what I've been doing, trying to do with the podcast and with yeah. what you just talked about there. This quote was basically saying that artists and poets look to the muse of the past to preserve the human soul. So yeah. feeling that connectedness at the hearth with the dogs, you know, that is something that is with your little child. I mean, you're that is something humans have been doing forever. And the, that's where you find the your so, the soul, the feeling of soul, the groundedness on earth and what being a human is. Anyways.
1: Absolutely. I,
0: I guess I should probably wrap this up and let you get back to your little babe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's, uh, she's had her tea. She's kind of
0: needing a bit of attention now, a bit of a lookout. Okay.
1: She's making her presence presence
0: felt. (laughs) uh, Well, that's awesome. Hello, little one. Um, would you mind just the last few minutes, would you mind just saying like, uh, people to check out your blog or on Instagram or if they are in Scotland and they want to come for a hunt or something like that? I mean, how say a little something on that. How do people find you and reach out?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, I've I've got my uh, my website, which is um, wayfaringhind.com, com, um, and I'm on Twitter. I think at wayfaringhind. I'm on Instagram, wayfaring underscore hind. <laughs> so it's a bit of a brand kind of thing going on there, um, and yeah, I mean, if anybody's in Scotland and wants to get in touch, just give me a shout on social media, and we can we can sort something out. I'm sure, um, always. Always quite keen to meet other people and like minded souls.